Naples Talk Radio. Welcome to Naples Talk Radio. In celebration of the 4th of July, we're going to honor somebody who embodies the spirit of freedom. Today's guest is a bugle player and a veteran of World War II as well as a Naples resident. Bob was introduced to me by Carl Fry from A Wonderful Life Productions, who is also joining us today. First, Bob will play his bugle, followed by a conversation about his life and service from a bygone era. Enjoy this truly historical celebration of an American patriot. What's your name, sir? Bob McDonald. Just the hell like the hamburger. Bob McDonald. Okay, just like the hamburger. Great. What kind of bugle is this? Well, this is a U.S. regulation bugle. 91 years old. I've been playing a bugle since I was 12 years old. That is amazing. That is absolutely amazing. So you're going to be playing for us today. Yes. And I see you are a World War II veteran. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. I was in Europe 29 months. I tried to play it for all the military events here in Collier County. And anytime they had a funeral, they wanted a bugler, I played for it gladly. What, what are you going to play for us? Now, usually a band will play a Star-Spangled Banner. But if there's no present, band present, then out below to the colors, and that's to have the same respect as the national anthem. That's incredible. I feel very patriotic just listening to that. Yeah, a lot of that guys don't play it because they can't last that long. <laughs> that takes a lot of lot of power, a lot of breath power, huh? Yeah. And you're you're how old? Ninety one. Ninety one. That's incredible. Taps. Very powerful song. Yeah, yeah. Boy, that's it. So, Bob, you're, you're you live in Naples, right? Yes. And and you served in World War Two. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I first bought a place in Naples in 1977. I was still in business then. Now, I grew up in a little town called Carlinville, Illinois. C A R L I N V I L L E, about 45 miles south of Springfield, Illinois, on Route Four. Route 4 was first paved road between Chicago and St. Louis. You grew up on the first paved road between Chicago and St. Louis. Correct. Wow. Wow. And when 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 was that? When when were you born? 
1924, January 1924. 1924. I started playing the bugle when I was 12 years old, uh, and I played in the Boy Scouts. And, uh, I can remember back, they have a Memorial Day service, they call it Decoration Day then, and they would have the band play in the square in the middle of t downtown. Business was a square, and in the middle of the square was a bandstand, and they'd bring Grandpa Knowles up. He was a 90-year-old Civil War veteran. His, a Civil War veteran. So yes. you listened to a 90-year-old Civil War veteran. Yes. That is amazing. I, I mean, I can't even... I mean, that is... that The Civil War was 1865. Yes. And so back then, you listened to somebody talk about the Civil War. Yes. And, I mean, that was a major, major war. I mean, 650,000 yeah. Americans died in the Whoa, Civil War. Oh, yeah. That war, we lost more people than the other war we ever had. Bob, were the Civil War veterans respected like World War II veterans are now? Well, yes, there's only one left in town. He was only one. All the rest of them are dead. Now, one of the interesting things, my father was born when Abraham Lincoln was president, just before the Civil War, 1865. And he did not get married. He uh, grew up in the age when the only power they had was horsepower and steam engines. You had to harness your horse, either hook up the buggy or put a saddle on. Everybody had a barn behind their house where they kept the horse. And that was the main mode of transportation? Yes. The livery stable was usually near the railroad station, and that was like the car rental office today. Wow. So, so instead of renting a car, you went and rented a horse? If a salesman came to town, he rented a horse and buggy at the livery station and I had the horse and buggy at his disposal until he left town and I turned him back in. Wow. So so instead of renting a car, you went and rented a horse? If a salesman came to town, he rented a horse and buggy at the livery station and I had the horse and buggy at his disposal until he left town and I turned him back in. So it, it seriously was like going to Hertz, right? So instead of going to Hertz and getting a car, Salesman comes into town. He goes to the. Well, just like the music band, you see that they're going to make the territory. That's what they did. They made the territory, and they'd have a mug, and they put the mug in the barber shop down at the, the town there, and they used to go to a sporting house, stay there where they could sleep and get their breakfast and dinner. And then they all go down to the barber shop together and shave at the barber shop, and the barber would charge them like anywhere from a nickel to fifteen cents to furnish the hot water and towels, hot water put in to make the foam in the, so they could shave. And everybody shaved them with a straight razor. The safety razor had not been invented. For fifteen cents, you could go to the barber and get a shave. Well, you shaved yourself. You use your own safety razor, oh, okay. straight razor, but the barber furnished the hot water to make the foam in your barber mug and the towels to dry yourself off with. It'd be anywhere from nickel to 15 cents. They didn't have whole motels then. Yeah. They had boarding houses. Boarding houses where you went, you got your meals and a bed and a bathtub. 
So Bob, your your childhood was during the Depression then. Oh, right? sure was. Nobody had any money. I remember the first job I had was working in a restaurant that waited ten cents an hour. And what what could you do with ten cents an hour? Well, you could get you could get half the shave, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> then I had a paper route, and uh, you could buy a. a, a a glass of milk or a glass of buttermilk for a nickel and a hamburger or a dime. If you want a milkshake, pay dime for milkshake and dime for a hamburger. So for an hour of work, you could get a hamburger or a milkshake? Yeah, listen, I had a good paper route. I made about $4 a little, $4 a week, and I was in heaven. $4 a week? I had all kinds of spending money, $4 a week. Because everything was a nickel or a dime. Like a Pepsi or a Coke was a nickel. So you could really stretch a dollar. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> they drafted me in January of 1943. And we all had a goal. This, I was living with an aunt at that time in Chicago. We had to go to high school one morning to begin our first physical exam. And the first ex physical exam consisted of this. We all had to strip down bare naked, no clothes just your socks. And your two physical exam consisted of walking past a doctor who was reading the Chicago Tribune. And if you could walk past the doctor, you passed the exam. <laughs> if you could walk past the doctor. <laughs> so there, there was people that couldn't walk past the doctor. Everybody walked past the doctor. So basically everybody, everybody who was there, as long as they could get in the building, they were drafted. Stripped down to walk past the doctor. That was an induction center. It was about 40 miles northwest of Chicago, 40, 50 miles northwest of Chicago. And that's that's where you were inducted in yes. Chicago. And they found I'd had a year of chemistry in college, and so they inducted me into the army and put me in, classified me as chemical warfare. So you were in chemical warfare. Well, they had chemical warfare in World War One. We had a neighbor that I was uh, next door where I grew up in Carlton. He had got gassed in World War One, mustard gas, burning your lungs up. And he was disabled the rest of his life. He couldn't work, do any physical work for any length of time. If he did, he couldn't breathe, get enough oxygen. So that was your specialty, understanding chemical warfare. Well, well no, not then. They classified me that. Then we went to bake, got it on a railroad car. And the railroad car was an ancient car for the Milwaukee Railroad. It was a wooden co coach. It was sat on wooden benches. It had stoves inside the coach to heat it. Because this is in January of 19, latter part of January, 1943. And we traveled on there for, uh, to Sheffield, Texas. And then they put us in the barracks, two-story barracks. And half the barracks was guys from the South, Georgia and Alabama, and all their grandfathers had been in the Civil War. So the Civil War was fought on us every night between the Yankees, us guys from the North, and those guys from the uh, South. We finished basic training in about six, six weeks, and then he took us on the train, the Katy Line, back to St. Louis. We got a train that evening. They shipped out for Rome, New York, where they
they put us to the Rome Army Depot. And there we helped box up material and load it on uh, trucks. And it was being shipped overseas on the Bradley Plan. The Bradley Plan was the code name for the invasion of Europe at that time. So, so tell me more about that plan. Well, we should, whatever they put out, we boxed up the ship, loaded it, and it was shipped to Europe on boats and stored in England until the invasion. What were you boxing? We didn't, we didn't know. We just boxed it. It was secret. You didn't divulge anything. You do what to tell you. Then we were sent from there to Fort Dix, New Jersey, to go to chemical warfare school. We got there at Fort Dix, New Jersey, and the air base there was flying submarine patrols off, off the Atlantic coast between New York City to down to Washington, D.C., back and forth. And we uh, went to chemical warfare service school, learned how to wear, wear chemical warfare clothing to suits to keep it from, if you had a chemical warfare attack, to keep it from getting it on your skin. What do those suits look like? They're kind of a oil cloth. And then we had gas, everybody had to carry a gas mask then. Then we have a gas mask test where they'd use a tear gas. And you'd put it on because your eyes are watering, your nostril, your throat burn until you got your gas mask on. We were there six weeks to we finished training. And then they shipped us to Syracuse, New York. Syracuse Army Air Base, which is now Syracuse International Airport. And that's where they had me play the bugle. They found out a bugler. And I'd have to get up every morning, play the bugle regularly to wake people up. And then um, to assembly for drilling and mess call or meals. They'd fly bombers in there. And they'd land there and spend overnight. And they would fly from there to Gander, Newfoundland, or a uh, place up in Maine. And there, from there, they'd fly to Iceland or Northern Ireland. They didn't have enough fuel to fall or fly all the way for one trip to England. And we'd have to stand guard at those bombers, either a B-24 flight. Uh, our B-17, the Flying Fortress. So so what does the B-24 look like? Well, it was uh, the largest bomber. It held more bombs than any other aircraft, more than the B-17, the Flying Fortress. It didn't have quite as much armament as the Flying Fortress. The Flying Fortress had a nose gun, twin turret guns, twin belly guns, and twin tail guns and side guns, one on each side. The B-24 had the same. They had the nose gun, twin turret guns, twin belly gun, and tail gun, and, and side gun. The people who, and they were not heated. They, have, they wore insulated flying suits because they'd be flying at 20,000 feet or be sub-zero temperatures when they make a bombing run. Then they uh, shut us down the end of September and said, 
were going to be shipped to Camp Kilmer, New Jersey to go overseas. Then we were there only a few days and they were going to load us on a train to ship us to New York Harbor to be shipped overseas. We didn't know where you're going. They don't tell you anything. In the Army, you do what they tell you and you get along fine. And then an officer major comes walking down the aisle and comes up to me and said, Robert, I want to wish you good luck over on your trip, trip overseas. His name is Kelly Renniger. He was a neighbor of ours from Carterville, Illinois. His grandfather had been a colonel in the Civil War. He had been a lieutenant in World War I. And so his, his father was also in World War I. And then he volunteered to the first service in World War II because he was still under the age of 45. And he was the provost marshal at Camp Kilmer. That's like the chief of police at Camp Kilmer. And on the side of the opposite side of the train, they had a patrol going up and down with a live shotgun for guys to want to jump the plane, jump the train to not go overseas. Because they didn't want to go overseas. That's right. So the war was in full force at that point. Oh, yeah, sure. So you just sit down on your bench and then they finally take off in New York Harbor. We were the last group to get on this boat. It was called the Argentina. The land lover from Illinois had never seen the ocean. It was endless. And there came about just millions of colored jellyfish floating in the ocean. Pinks and reds and blues and, and whites and light blue and dark blue. And just gorgeous. I've never seen anything before like that in my lifetime. And never seen anything like it since. And saw that for hours. So, so tell me about the invasion. Where, where were you during the invasion? Well, I was still cooking there. There's a personnel replacement depot. These, the, uh, these airmen, air officers, they'd fly their bombers into Charlie Wigan or Burtonwood, and then they would be sent down to our camp for orientation for a week or ten days, and then they'd be shipped out to an operational beach where they were needed. And then the, at that time, the bombers had to try to fly 25 missions over Germany, and then if they were still living, they were repatriated back to the States. Only 10% came back. So each each person had to run 25 missions? Yes. And if they survived, and only 10% survived? Yeah, I had to fly 25 missions. And the atrocity rate then was 90%. Then towards the end of the war, the Luftwaffe had been destroyed and the P-51 came along, and it was able to fly all the way to fighter escort to the bombers to the target and back. Before then, the bombers, the fighters couldn't carry enough fuel. They'd fly as far as the channel and then have to turn around and come back because they didn't have enough fuel to fly all the way, escort the bombers all the way to target in Germany. Then they had to fly 30 missions. Then they 90% came back. They had a lot of flying officers. They were trained to fly a glider, be towed by a DC-3 or a parachute ship to pull it to uh, over France on D-Day to land. They overloaded them, and the wheels were too small, so when they landed, they disintegrated. Most of the people in them were killed. 
Well, some survived, and they were very lucky to do so. They had bombed the aircraft, the fuel so bad, they all was just cratered all the fuel. You can fly in anything in or out of there. There's no air, no landing strip. But the bombed up German aircraft were all pushed together in huge mountains. And then I had enough points to come home, and then they got on a 40 and 8, they put 20 soldiers on one of these 40 horses or eight humans, eight asses. And we had 20, we had a little charcoal heater, and we traveled about 10 miles an hour, never over 20 miles an hour, because the, the railroad tracks were in bad shape. And then we got to Cologne, Germany, and when we crossed the Rhine River, they reduced the speed down to 10 miles an hour because the tractor built over the fallen superstructure of the rivers that were, the bridges were all superstructure of the bridges. All the bridges had bob, bend, bump, and were laying, laying in the Rhine River. Anyway, I finally got back to the state safe and got discharged at Camp Grant, where I entered the service in March 3rd, 1947. I was overseas for 29 months. Bob, that is an amazing story, and I really do appreciate you coming in today, playing the bugle, and I, I really do appreciate your service as an American, and and, and I do really appreciate your story, and, and thank you so much for coming in today. Ladies and gentlemen, on this 4th of July, remember your veterans, remember people that served like Bob McDonald here. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here to get relayed to you. You big people are great patriots by doing it.